Well, good afternoon, good morning, good evening, whatever time of day it is when you may be joining us. This is Reverend Kay Mortimer with Covenant Truth Ministries, and this is today's edition, episode 254 of Bible Bites. And today, my reading is found in Ezekiel chapter 37 through 39. And so there's a bunch of notes I have on this, so I'm going to scoot through them as quickly as I can, but these chapters are uh, very, very important. Chapter 37 is this prophecy of the Valley of Dry Bones. And the setting is that Ezekiel is taken by the Spirit to a valley, and in that valley it's filled with many, lots and lots and lots of bones, dead bones. They are very dead, very dry, and have been there a very long time. And so God poses a question to Ezekiel in verse 3. Now, I just want to point out one quick thing. When God asks a question, it's never because he needs information. He never needs you to tell him something he doesn't know. He always asks questions to bring revelation instead. Something needs to be uncovered. Something needs to be revealed. Something needs to be discovered. For instance, the very first time God asked a question in the Bible is found when God called for Adam. And he said, Adam, where are you? God knew exactly where Adam was. But God needed Adam to know where Adam was. God needed a revelation to come to Adam that their condition and their relationship has now changed. And Adam is now running and hiding from God instead of looking forward to divine fellowship with him. So, so God poses a question. When God poses a question, it is for revelation purposes. It's for discovery. So he poses this question and he says, he says to Ezekiel, son of man, can these bones live? I love Ezekiel's answer. He's like, oh, Lord God, you know, <laughs> you know, I, I can relate to that. It's like, I don't have a clue, Lord, but you're the one who knows. So, so you tell me. And so then God does begin to tell him. And so God begins to explain to him. And he says, I want you to go out. You're looking at a bunch of dead, dry bones. And I want you to prophesy, thus saith the Lord, a rhema word from God that carries life vitality, and power to accomplish its mission. And that's what Ezekiel was told to do. So Ezekiel goes, and God tells him exactly what to say. This is the living word from the mouth of the Almighty God, and it works. So he tells him, he says, you prophesy to them and say to them, O dry bones, hear the word of the Lord. Let me stop right there, because when you see the Old Testament word for hear, it doesn't mean just listen with your ear. It carries a connotation that this word is to be obeyed. There is power in it. There's life in it. You are to listen to it and then do what it says. Obey it. And so we're here, we hear that a lot when he talks to Israel, the people of Israel, and he says, hear the word of the Lord. And, you know, it's the expectation is that you will hear with an open ear and an open heart and then do what God has said. So God is delivering this, and he says, dry bones, listen to me and obey me. Thus saith the Lord God to these bones, surely I will cause breath 
to enter into you and you shall live. And then he goes on, he talks about, I'm going to put sinews on you, flesh on you, cover you with skin and give you breath. And you're going to come to life. Now, these things had been dead and dry for a very long time. They were very, very dry. And yet God says, at my word, at my word, you're going to live again. At my word, this deadness will cease and life will come. At my word, you're going to have not only your, are you going to live, but you're going to have flesh, you're going to have skin, you're going to have muscle, you're going to have all of this. You're going to come to life as a vibrant being again. So Ezekiel does that. He prophesies to it. And as he's delivering the word, there's this rattle, rattling and shaking going on because the bones are responding to the word of the Lord. The bones are living again. The deadness is, is ceasing and the, the life is coming to them. And so they begin bone to bone come together. And so then they're standing there, but there's no breath in them. So now Ezekiel is told you prophesy to the breath and you command the breath from the four winds to come into them that they will live. You see, when, when God um, made Adam and Eve, the Bible says when he made Adam, he breathed life into him and Adam became a living soul. So these are to become living beings. And so he prophesies and he prophesies to the breath and the breath comes into them and they live and they stand on their feet an exceedingly great army. Now, we don't have to worry about the interpretation of this vision because God tells us beginning in the very next verse in verse 11. He says to a son of man, these bones are the whole house of Israel. They indeed say our bones are dry, our hope is lost, and we ourselves are cut off. So God is giving them a word saying, I'm going to open up your graves. You're going to come up out of there and I'm going to bring you into the land of Israel. Now, let me point out a couple of things. There is um, an understanding that some have about uh, 10 lost tribes of Israel, they call it. Well, according to the scriptures, I don't find that to be so. And here again, you will see he prophesies and he says, I'm going to bring the whole house of Israel, all the 12 tribes together. So I don't believe that that is an accurate um, concept. And I just wanted to speak that about it. But it's this, this word. So these bones are coming together. God is prophesying and saying, this is what this means. The dry bones are the whole house of Israel. This word reached way into the future and has now become fulfilled before our eyes because we saw it happen. The dry bones represents the Holocaust that the Jews went through. And if you look at some of the pictures of them coming back to Israel after the Holocaust, those that survived, they look like walking dead people. I mean, they're just nothing but skin and bones, barely alive. And yet God brought them through, gave them life again. And even now today, they have an exceedingly great army, the Israeli Defense um, Army, the Dis Israeli Defense Forces. So God is fulfilling his word here in Ezekiel chapter 37, and it has been fulfilled at least partially in our very day. And so now God has brought the whole house of Israel and they are entering and they are enjoying their land ever since 1947, 48 in that time period when they became a nation in 1948. 
There is also a spiritual application, however, to this. There is the context and the historical application that I just mentioned, but there's also a spiritual application for those of us because sometimes there may be, we may look at something in our life or some area and feel like it is just dead dry bones and there's no life in it whatsoever. If that thing is supposed to live, if that thing is a part of you that is part of your destiny, part of your ministry, something that has to live, it will live again. God is prophesying his word. And just like he did in this, um, and we have seen it now come to literal pass after 2,000 years and after the Holocaust, we have now seen the dry bones come back to life. And we have seen them come to the land of Israel. And we have seen the, the Israeli defense uh, forces become a mighty army, just like was prophesied here. We've seen the literal fulfillment of this. But God, there's, God's also got a spiritual fulfillment. There may be areas where there's a valley in your life that seems to be a dead, dry place. And yet through the Spirit of God and through the Word of God spoken to that, it can live again and become vibrant and alive again. So don't think that it's just dead and gone forever. If God wants that thing to come alive, it will come alive in your life. Praise be to God. So God uses then in verse 15 through 22 of chapter 37, God uses another visual to teach them. And he's showing them that from now on, they're going to be one nation. They're never going to be divided like they were before where you had the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom. No longer will that be happening. There will, they will be one nation, which they are today. And in the future, this is the part that is not yet fulfilled for sure. And that is that they will have one king over them. And it will be the Messiah who is also called in verse 24, David, my servant. Now, David was long dead and gone at this time. He is speaking of the coming Messiah, the son of David. This is the promise through the rest of this chapter of the Messiah's coming kingdom there in Jerusalem, and it also speaks of the salvation of the Jewish people when Jesus, the son of David, will rule and reign over them and they will come back to him. Now, continuing on, Ezekiel 38 and 39. We just even mentioning that it uh, causes a lot of connotations for us in our minds because it's very prophetic scripture. And there is a lot of prophecy teaching um, that is um, in reference to Ezekiel 38 and 39. I don't claim to be a prophecy expert. I haven't studied it for years and years and years. But God has given me the ability to do some revelation and prophecy studies. And I have looked into the word. And so I just want to bring you some thoughts for you to pray about and consider and certainly this topic is way beyond a small Bible Bites um, episode. So it's something for you to dig in and to uh, discover for yourself. And it may be that in other, at other times I will bring other revelation messages to you as well. But let me just speak to you about what I gather and what I can understand from what the scriptures say right here from the very words in Ezekiel 38 and 39. This is prophetic of what we typically call the Gog and Magog War, 
which is yet to be fully fulfilled. It has never been done yet. The nations of this coalition that are going to form this military coalition and become uh, in great in, engaged in this campaign, the best that we can determine from these biblical names are going to be Iran, which is modern-day Persia, Sudan, which is the modern-day name for what the Bible called Ethiopia here, Libya, Turkey, which comprises what the Bible considered to be Gomer and Togarma here, and Russia, which the Bible considers to be Magog and calls Magog. And Gog is, or Gog, as the, the Hebrews might pronounce it, is the leader, probably a Russian leader, I'm assuming. All of these countries are now becoming allies and are gathering in league together. So I see the stage now being set for this to occur sometime in the future. Now, I'm not going to even predict anything about when that will happen other than what we can surmise from the scripture. But these groups of nations with this Russian leader, I'm assuming that's what Gog represents, are going to form a military campaign and flood into Israel. But it will occur when a time at a time when Israel is dwelling safely without walls. That is not the current status right now, which leads us to believe that some of the other wars that are prophesied in the Bible happen prior to this war. For instance, Psalm 83, uh, because Israel now, as you know, is surrounded by some very um, dangerous enemies, and they live under threat all the time from Hamas and Hezbollah and some of those things. So they are not in a place yet where they are dwelling safely without walls, which is what this uh, designates. So it's a future um, event to come. The goal of this coalition is to take plunder and beauty from Israel and from uh, bounty uh, from Israel and from the land. They want to go in and take the resources and take the money and that kind of thing because Israel has some vast mineral resources and other things, um, oil and different things that have gas and stuff that has been found there. Verse 13 mentions that there are other nations that question this military campaign or question their motives. Uh, perhaps these become allies of Israel. We don't know who all these represent. They are listed in here as Sheba, Dedan, the merchants of Tarshish, and all their young lions. Some have portrayed possibly Europe and America in that, in that particular listing there, um, as well as perhaps even Arabia and some of the other places. I don't know exactly who all these particular nations represent, but they're going to, um, in a sense, almost kind of ask, well, why are you wanting to take booty from them, you know, and they question their motives, perhaps in Israel's defense in some way, though this does remain unclear. Then when we look at verse 14 through 23, and continue on in chapter 39. To me, this gives me some more clarity on the potential of when this particular battle falls in the calendar of future events. 
Now, I can't say it's going to happen on such and such a day in such and such year, but I'm just talking about in the overall overview of coming events that, that we consider to be prophetic, such as some of these other wars that are prophesied and the tribulation that, that um, is spoken about throughout the book of Revelation, all the judgments, bowls, and trumpets, and those other things that are coming. I can't state specifically, but I do believe that when we look at the Word and we try to uh, leave off preconceived notions and ideas and just let the Bible tell us, it will speak to us. And so I'd like to propose that to you right now. As I said, this is much deeper than this small episode and something worthy of your own study. But I want to point out a few things. Although they're going to come into the land and launch their campaign, God himself will enter this fight. The Bible calls him Yahweh Nisi, which is the Lord our banner or the Lord our victory. He also is known as Yahweh Sabaot. And that is the Lord of hosts, the Lord of the armies of God. He never enters a war that he will not win. So he is going to enter this war and he's going to win it. And we're going to see a few details about that. So the question then is, when is this war going to come? All right. Many prophecy experts debate that. Some believe that it starts the seven-year tribulation, and the primary reason that I've heard most of them explain that is because of one of the scriptures in these chapters that talk about them burning the weapons of this, from this war for seven years. Now, to me, that alone is not a worthy enough um, explanation for when this is to happen, and I'll tell you why, because taken from this text, from this text and from what God describes about conditions and things that happen during this war, let's look at those. All right. First of all, it says that this will happen in the latter days, meaning at the end. In other words, like the residue or the hindermost times. It suggests that it's at the very end or the last. It says that nations plural, will know God as he is hallowed then before their eyes, which suggests to me that this happens at the second coming, because at that time, all eyes will see him, we are told in the New Testament. It says here that his fury shows in his face. If you see Revelation chapter 19, verse 11 and 12, at his second coming, it talks about how his eyes are full of fire, fiery judgment. It says here that there will be a great earthquake and that this causes people to shake at his presence. There's also another prophetic word in Zechariah 14, verses 1 through 5, how he will stand upon the Mount of Olives and there will be a great earthquake. The mountain will split. He says here that, he, that this causes people to shake at his presence, implying that he has now come and is there in their midst. It says the mountains and the hills will be leveled. There are other prophecies that speak of that at his coming. It speaks about a destroying sword that's going to be released to go out to them. Revelation 19 verses 12 through 15 tell us about the sword that comes out of his mouth in that day. 
He says he's going to bring them to judgment. Joel chapter 3 speaks of how God brings them all to judgment there in the valley near Jerusalem, the valley of Jehoshaphat, it's called, and he's going to judge them. It talks about torrential rain, hailstorm, fire, and brimstone being uh, leashed, unleashed upon them. This is associated also in other places with God's utter destruction. In Revelation, we find it, and also in places like when he destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah. It says that God will be exalted and known in the eyes of many nations. Here again, that implies his second coming when, he will, when every eye will see him. Then in chapter 39, we continue on. It says that the victory comes when they fall on the mountains of Israel, which we can also surmise from Zechariah in, in his prophecy, especially there in Zechariah 14. These nations will become prey and become a sacrificial feast to the birds and the beasts of the field. That is specifically prophesied here and only one other place in the entire Bible does it speak of a campaign and the victory going to as a feast to the birds and the beast. And guess where that is? In Revelation chapter 19, verses 17 and following. So that, that to me is too, um, is, it can't be a coincidence. God is too specific in his word. So I believe that's the, the battle that's spoken of at that time. These, these nations that form this coalition are devoured by fire from heaven like Sodom was. Also, God's name is now known in the midst of Israel, and that will happen in that day. Nations now know that he is God, again, implying his second coming when he is known of all the nations. And then he says here in this passage, it's the day which God himself has spoken of. And that day throughout the prophets is called the day of the Lord. And it implies this time period when Jesus will return. In verse 9 and 10, that's the verse that gives us the information about the weapons being burned for seven years. A lot of people take that to say that that means that this begins the seven-year tribulation. I don't see that supported in Scripture because of these other things that I just spoke about, especially when you connect that feast for the birds and the beast, um, and that falls in Revelation 19. I would propose instead that this may represent the first sminta of the millennial reign. The sminta, remember, is the Sabbath cycle of years, seven years. And so to me, I personally see that more as the very initial sminta during Jesus' millennial reign when he sets up his kingdom. There's also another prophetic word about the weapons burning in Isaiah chapter 9, verse 5 as well. So this does not mean that their campaign ushers in the tribulation just because of this seven years, in my opinion. In verse 11, it tells us that there'll be seven months to bury all the bodies in this valley, <clears throat> valley called Valley of Hamong Gog, 
which to me gives us more proof that it's, it happens at Jesus' second coming, because it also speaks of it being at the day when Jesus is glorified, and that comes at his second coming. As a matter of fact, really, um, I was just sharing this with a friend of mine, and I, and I included it in my last Millennial Kingdom um, Bible study broadcast that I did. The Lord showed me, uh, I, I believe it was the Lord showed me this. I wondered in the Revelation chapter 22, where it talks about the spirit and the bride say, come. And I was always curious. I was like, well, why does it say the spirit, meaning the Holy Spirit and the bride say, come? Why is the Holy Spirit wanting Jesus to come? And the Lord showed me, I believe, because he, he asked me, he said, the Lord always does this. Whenever I ask him a question, a lot of times he'll ask me a question back so that the discovery and the revelation can come from that, from that search. And so when I did that, the Lord showed me, he said, what is the purpose of the Holy Spirit? What is his mission? What is his goal? What is his aim? And I went back to the scriptures and I realized his job is to glorify Jesus. That's his whole purpose. It, Jesus said he will not testify of himself. He will testify of me for he is he's to come. He's come to glorify me. And so when the spirit and the bride say come, the spirit's reasoning is to see Jesus receive the glory that he's due. Because on that day, he will be glorified in all the earth. That's the day that we're looking forward to when the glory of the Lord will fill the earth. It will be everywhere. And the Spirit is excited about that. The Spirit of God is longing to see that day come when Jesus receives His just due, His just glory and honor. And that day is the day of His coming. And it speaks here about the day when Jesus is glorified, when the Lord is glorified. So to me, that's another proof of it, um, that it may happen at the end of the tribulation when the Lord returns. And that may be that final battle that sometimes is also referred to as the Battle of Armageddon. In verse 21 and 22 of this chapter 39, it also clearly attests to me, that this is at his second coming because Israel will now know from this day forward, the Bible says, that it's Jesus, that, that he is the Lord, and there'll be no more question. And that comes about, according to Zechariah chapter 12, verse 10 through 14, when all Israel will call upon him, they will look upon him whom they have pierced, and they will mourn for him as for an only son. They will be brought to repentance, and they will then know him, and all Israel will be saved. And I want to end by reading verse 29 of chapter 39. And I will not hide my face from them anymore, for I shall have poured out my spirit on the house of Israel, says the Lord God. God's not done with the nation of Israel. He is going to draw them to himself. He's already doing it. And many Jews are coming to faith in Jesus even right now as the Messiah and seeing him as their Lord and Savior. But in that day, all Israel will be saved. Paul prayed for that. And Zechariah prophesied about it. And that's going to happen. God's not done 
with the Jewish people. He's going to draw them to himself and be glorified in their midst from that day forward. Praise God for his word. I trust this has been a blessing to you. Lord willing that you can join us again for future episodes of Bible Bites. God bless you today.